never easy as a preacher to, sometimes I always, when I want to preach, I hope they bring out the mellow songs that don't get you too excited, because then you start losing your voice, and then you now have to come and preach again for a while. Uh, but uh, we thank God for the opportunities that he's given us, the wonderful people that he's um, gifted in the church to write good songs for us, but also to write good music behind the songs as well. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yesterday, we, um, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole recap of all the talks. I'm just going to talk about what I, I, I spoke about. Um, as we said, the way we set this up is that in the morning, the first talk would be a theological, if you like, expose. So the other talks are then building more practically on, on, um, on the theme uh, to equip us. So I'm going to do that again today. So yesterday, we talked about the kingdom of God and said, look, if your church is going to be healthy, it's going to be gospel-centered. If it's going to be gospel-centered, it's going to be God-focused. If it's going to be God-focused, that means his kingdom must reign in your church. If his kingdom is going to reign in your church, that has to be the kingdom of Christ. So your church must be Christ-centered. So we walk through the development and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Right? Seeing how uh, from the garden to the call of Abraham to the establishment of um, the, uh, the kingdom in Israel to the falling away and then how that eventually comes to the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who is now enthroned in heaven. So that kingdom is not a kingdom that will come when Jesus returns. That kingdom has started. You understand that? The kingdom of God is already here. Now, when Jesus came, he said it's at hand. It's coming. When he ascended into heaven, he, was inaug he inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom has started. However, we are still waiting for the consummation, the full-blown, uh, if you like, um, implications of the kingdom to now spread all over the world, right? But right now, the kingdom has started. And so it is, if you want to see your church healthy, the kingdom of God has to invade your church, which means that your church will be Christ-centered. And so when, the preach, when Will was talking, he told us that your preaching always has to be Christ-centered. When Oni was talking, he was saying, look, if you have compassion in your heart, the kingdom of God will advance by using planting of churches as God's mission, uh, God's mission strategy to continue to advance the kingdom of God. And the others also spoke, um, um, Matthew also spoke about some of those things. I said I wasn't going to talk about the talks, and I, there we go, I already started talking about them. All right, so we have a lot to do this morning. And so, um, if you remember, yesterday we said, we're talking a lot about the meeting place, that the kingdom of God, there's a meeting place, is a meeting place between God and man, there's the place. And that place has to have God's presence. And Jesus eventually fulfills that, he is that temple. And that's why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when Jesus, though, was about to leave and he was talking to his disciples, right, they were sad. They were, you know, discomforted. And he said, don't worry. I have a solution. I will send you someone else. John chapter 14, 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father. He will give you another Advocate. When it says another advocate, you remember in 1 John, the same writer, in 1 John says, if we confess our sins, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. The same Greek word, parakletos, right? So another advocate. Jesus is one parakletos, and he's saying another parakletos. That is another like me. Another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Who is it? The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you. And he was talking then about really the spirit being on Jesus Christ as, as he had been with them. But then he says something crucial. He will be in you. If you're going to see the kingdom of God come in fruition in your church, we need both God with us and God in us. Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can't see the Father, but the Son was held. He was touched. God with us. He's in heaven now, reigning. So how do we know his kingdom is operating? Well, the third person in the Trinity is in us. Now, that is what we want to talk about today. In other words, if your church is going to be gospel-centered and is going to be God-focused, not only would it be Christ-centered, it has to be spirit-filled. Often many people think about the, the Trinity, and it's always just one doctrine to be debated, debated over, but we never think about how it is such a practical doctrine. I keep saying it's the most foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, not because we have to argue over it. But the whole Bible, Revelation, the whole of redemption is a Trinity-focused thing. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord, and the Lord Yahweh is a Trinitarian God. So we cannot see the Father. It's his kingdom, but it's mediated through his Son from heaven and to the Spirit. So I'm going to talk about what it means to be a Spirit-filled church. And so what we're going to do, because the issue of the Holy Spirit, you see, yesterday... We're talking about Jesus Christ, and there was so much peace here. Because <laughs> everybody, you know, once it comes to Jesus Christ, it's fine. Once you start talking about the Holy Spirit, aha, all of a sudden you start moving further away from your brother. Eh, you believe that? And some people are like, ah, ah, I thought I came to an, a, 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 a conference where everything was uh, according to the Bible. Which one is this Holy Spirit again? Now, there's so much confusion, I think, about the Holy Spirit. There's always controversy. Um, so what I hopefully want to do is to try to bring us maybe to a more biblically focused understanding of the Holy Spirit. So we have to walk through um, some of the ways he's been anticipated in the Old Testament. We'll see how it's fulfilled in the New Testament, and then we'll connect it to the church. But I want to make this case to you that the Holy Spirit, like, is, like Jesus, is God, and he's the one who orchestrates the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. If Jesus, if in Jesus we see the establishment of the kingdom, then in the Holy Spirit we see the oppression of the kingdom. And you see it all the time. Romans 8, I can talk to you about Romans 8. Jesus is interceding for us before the Father in heaven. But the Holy Spirit, when we do not know what to say, he is interceding for us from the earth in our hearts to the Father, Romans 8. 
All right, so let's not get too excited before we start. Let's go into scriptures now. So I'm going to talk to you about three things. Uh, we'll talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the birthing of the church. And then finally, we'll talk about the kingdom, the church, and the Holy Spirit. All right? Those are the three sections. There will be a lot of scriptures that we'll read as yesterday, so let's start. Now, what we're going to spend, in this first section, we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. And it's really important that we do so because if you notice, in the book of Acts, it's book-ended by discussions on the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Or Acts chapter 1, verse 4, they said, look, when Jesus resurrected, right, after showing many proofs to people, what did he do? He, oh, sorry, verse 3, convincing, he showed them uh, convincing proof that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and what did he do? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God, verse 3. In verse 5, the disciples then said, will you now restore, won't you now restore the kingdom back to Israel? So this is the beginning of the book of Acts, talking about the kingdom of God. What do you find at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 30 to 31? For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Paul is in Rome. He is in prison. You're wondering how he has a house. Well, you could have a house and be in prison. That's another thing for another day. Verse 31, what was he doing when they were coming for two whole years? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. Many times we know this, some of us, as we studied our Bibles, that many times this thing we call the inclusio, where you have something at the beginning, something at the end. What it's saying is if you see this thing at the beginning and at the end, what is in the middle is explicating those things that was mentioned both at the beginning and the end. Do you understand that? And so the book of Acts is, in one regard, telling you, it's not the only thing, but it's telling you about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And it's funny how he ties that advancement, that's the writer Luke, the advancement of the kingdom of God to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because in verse 4 of chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, that's Jesus, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just spoken about the kingdom, and then after that, he then speaks about the Holy Spirit. And in verse 7 and 8, he said, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You see what I'm saying? Because in Acts chapter 2, all the way to chapter 7, where, where was the locus of ministry? The locus of ministry was in Jerusalem and Judea. By the time you get to Acts chapter 8, the ministry moves forward, 8 and 9, the locus of ministry is now in Samaria. By the time you get to Acts chapter 10, when Peter meets Cornelius, all of a sudden he's now speaking to Gentiles. Judah, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That was, in some sense, Acts 1.8 was already fulfilled in a miniature form in, verse t in chapter 10. But in a grander scheme, Paul starts from Jerusalem 
And what is he doing? I must take the gospels to the end of the earth. I'm taking it to the capital of the ends of the earth, which was Rome. But all of this was on account of the Holy Spirit's coming. Therefore, the Holy Spirit's coming is essential. And understanding the Holy Spirit is essential in understanding the working of the kingdom of God. And so because of that, I want us to talk a little bit about this promise, the anticipated promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's go into some Old Testament scriptures. Some of it I'll just talk about. Um, I'll just speak from here and here. So let's talk maybe one in the law. Numbers chapter 11. Quite often this is, um, I think, a very neglected passage. And I don't know quite why, because something very crucial happens there. Now, don't forget, when God has called Israel out, right, who did he call them? Who delivered Israel? Moses, right? And God has anointed Moses. But Moses has a special ministry, because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you know, we often talk about the lineage of the kings, Right? David had a lineage that God promised. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is promised a lineage of prophets. If you read Deuteronomy 18, I think from verse 18 to maybe 19, 20, 21. Because God says to Moses that, look, after you, I will raise up another prophet to whom, just like you, to whom the people shall listen to. And from that became the establishment of the prophetic office. Moses was the fundamental prophet of the Old Testament. Do we understand? In fact, when Elijah can speak and say, by my word, rain shall not uh, fall in this place, right, until I say so for three and a half years. It wasn't like Elijah was bringing his new revelation. He had read what God had promised in Leviticus and Deuteronomy when Israel departs away from the covenant that God had given them. Why? Because Moses was the fundamental prophet. Everyone spoke, everyone was giving a commentary or explicating the commentary on what Moses had said in the Lord. Do we understand that? And so Moses, as the fundamental prophet, God has said, I will give you a lineage of prophets. So if we understand Moses as the prophet, how do we know Moses is the prophet? Because Moses has the spirit of prophecy upon him. So Moses is leading these people, but it is becoming too burdensome for him. There's a leadership issue here. So God says, you know what I'm going to do? Call 70 people out. And the way you would see that I have chosen them to lead with you is that I will take the spirit that is on you, and I will put that spirit on them, and then you will know I've chosen them. Now, God doesn't need to know whether or not he has chosen the people or he has put the spirit on them. You understand that? Who needs to know? Amen. Moses and the people around Moses. So when he pours the spirit on them, if it is the spirit of Moses who is the fundamental prophet, what do you expect them to do? They start to prophesy. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. Amen? But well, that was the problem. You know, if you have a problem maybe with one other minister of God who is your friend, 
You know, you don't like what he said about something, so you guys argue a little bit, and that's fine. The problem is that you have your associate pastor that is following you, your spiritual son, your boy. Whenever you, you are angry about something, small anger, two over 10 anger, you know what the people that are following you are like? Eight over 10. So Moses had this guy that had been following him, Joshua. He said he's been following him right from him, he was a small boy. And he said, ah, my Lord Moses, your ministry is going to, is going to be diluted. Though. 70 more people doing the same thing. And then he found out that there were two other people, the 68, two other people were not prophesying in the right place. They were prophesying in the tent, elder and Medad. So Joshua, out of zeal, told him, my Lord Moses, can I quote the King James? My Lord Moses, forbid them. And this is where I'm going. Because what Moses says, don't miss this. It looks like a wish, but it is a prophetic wish. He says, are you jealous for my sake? You think this thing is about me? Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. And you say, oh, we're going to have now, all of the Lord's people are now prophets, office of the prophet. No, don't mistake it. The issue he was pointing to was not so much that there will be prophets like Moses, but that what? And that the Lord will put his spirit on them. Moses' wish was that the Lord's people, all of them, not just the 70, not just the two that were in the camp. All of the Lord's people will have his spirit upon them. You know what they say? It was a wish. And if wishes were horses, beggars will ride. Moses died, and he didn't see his wish come to pass. But there was another prophet that... God was showing the future because he had complained he had with, um, when Israel was sinning, sinning, sinning. God is going to take us into exile. God is going to take us into exile. And he did. In fact, when God called him, he was a young guy. So he was part of the people that went into exile. And in fact, his prophetic ministry was largely, he was seeing a lot that was in exile. He was seeing a lot that was going on in Jerusalem whilst he was in exile. His name was Ezekiel. He used to say a lot of funny things. You know, you like to read the book of Isaiah, but you don't like reading the book of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel anticipates, he starts anticipating a time when the exiles will return in a very, in a very astonishing and almost over-the-top way. These people who have been rebelling, 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 and God has judged, is there going to be a time where they will be able to follow the laws of God? Because it seems like these laws of God were written down on Tablets of stone, they cannot follow it. I says, yes, that time will come. Just before he sees a, prophet, a prophetic vision of, the dry, of dry bones that will live, God tells him certain things in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 7. Listen to what he says. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and new spirit in you, and I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Ezekiel doesn't say something different from Moses, but he pushes the narrative further. He says the way people can be taken away from their rebellious ways is not to give them more and more instructions. It's that their heart is hard, so when you give them instructions, they will always rebel against it. They need a new heart. They need a revived spirit. And guess what they also need? They need the spirit now. Not just put on them. They need the spirit in them. I will put my spirit in you. <coughs> Moses' wish, rather, Moses' hope has not died. And he says, when this happens, you will see willingness to conform with God's laws. Well, there's another prophet. Because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those guys, I don't know, they spent too much of their time writing. They had enough time. But there are some of the prophets that just had to get their message across very quickly because God, God, God told them certain things about specific things. And was this guy, after he's proclaimed how there's going to be famine, there's going to be locusts that will come uh, because of the rebellion of the people that will come to decimate the land, he then anticipates again that something is going to happen, that God is going to do a work of revitalization among the people. He anticipates in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, God says this, afterward, after all the devastation has happened, I will pour out my spirit on who? All people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will pour out my spirit on who? All people. Sounds very much like Moses, doesn't it? So what you see is that the outpouring of this spirit is going to, on the one hand, cause moral renovation, a la Ezekiel. I will cleanse you from your idols. You will keep my laws. But it will also cause some extraordinary supernatural events. Your sons and your daughters will what? Prophesy, Joel. But those are the receptors of, the effect of the receptors of the outpouring of the Spirit. Who is going to pour out this Spirit? You say God. Now, it's God that has been saying it. It's true. But when you now read Isaiah, it is God, and yet he kind of modifies it. Like, God is going to pour it out, but the way God is going to pour it out is that God is going to pour it out on someone who is then going to pour it out on the people. There's going to come someone in whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon and there will be his people who will be anticipating the outpouring of that Spirit. So in Isaiah 61, we, ident we identify this servant of the Lord. And if you've been reading Isaiah very well, you see the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42. You see the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49. You see the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50. And then you see the servant of the Lord culminating in Isaiah 53. 
But then, this servant of the Lord starts the mission in Isaiah 54 all the way to Isaiah 65. And in particular, in Isaiah 61, it says this about him. A shoot. Sorry, Isaiah uh, 11. Sorry, 11. But you can also see in 61 as well, but I didn't put 11. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will do what? Rest on him. Whose shoot is it coming from? Jesse. Jesse is the father of who? So this is the Davidic Messiah. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 61, it says that uh, uh, the spirit of the Lord is what? Upon me. For he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to declare, you know, the year of the Lord's favor. All of those things is the same person he's speaking about here. Because when you read the whole of Isaiah 11, he talks about the consummated kingdom of this Davidic Messiah. So the spirit is going to rest on him. But in Isaiah chapter 32, when he has told the people in Isaiah chapter 31, woe to them that go down in Egypt, Isaiah is anticipating a time when the Israelites, in full-blown rebellion, will go and seek Egypt. When Nebuchadnezzar comes to them, they go and seek an alliance with Egypt, right? And he said, woe to those who go down in Egypt. They still did it anyway. But now he's talking to the women there and he's saying, yes, there will be desolations when this kind of thing happens. But don't lose hope because something is coming that will happen after. Isaiah 32, verse 14 to 15. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys. A pasture for flocks. That looks terrible. What shall we do? Is this going to continue forever and ever and ever? No. Why? Until the Spirit is poured on us. From where? On high. And then the desert will become a fertile field, and the fertile field will seem like a forest. So take note. There is the anticipated promise of this Spirit that is going to be poured out. It is going to cause the character of people to change. It is also going to cause them to express certain extraordinary activities. But that spirit, we anticipate to be poured out on a whole category of people. Everyone in that category will receive that spirit. But it's going to be poured out on them from God through a Davidic Messiah on those people. Do we get the picture? That's what the Old Testament gives us. So now let's move to the New Testament. John chapter 1. Remember John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So all of a sudden God's, God, God is one, but God is speaking to God. God's fellow is the Word, but the Word is God. And we know that nothing was created in verse 3 that was not created by this Word. This Word, though, then became a human being, John 1, 14. And then in John 1, 17, 18, we are told that this word is also the son. Now, that son, and we are told also that he's the he's person of Jesus. This son now comes into the world, but before he comes, there is someone, a prophet, in the lineage of Moses that is there, having a great ministry, 
but he says that my ministry is largely a forerunning ministry. I am anticipating the coming of someone. And here is how he knows who that person is going to be. Listen closely. John 1.32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove. And what did he do? What does Isaiah 11 tell us? The Spirit will what? Rest on him. And if I myself did not know him, but, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one that would now do what? Remember what we said in the Old Testament? It is God is going to pour out that Spirit, but he's going to pour out the Spirit first on this Messiah who is the one that will now pour out the Spirit. But here he uses the term called baptizing the Spirit. So in other words, both the pouring out and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is one and the same thing. In fact, if you read the book of John further, go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, Jesus is now at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then he says, look, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, the rivers of living water will flow from within them. What is this? Rivers of living water. Well, by this he meant what? The Spirit. Whom those who believed in him. Who are those who were going to receive the Spirit? I'm asking again. Who are those that were going to receive the Spirit? Is it potentially some of them? If they tarry. Or if they fast. If they go to an upper room. All who believe in him were what? To receive. But up until that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been. What's the glorification of Jesus? The resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus as he goes. When Jesus goes, then he's saying, Jesus has been glorified. Then that spirit is going to be poured out. So can we now go back to Acts? With all of that background, and I'm rushing really, so in Acts chapter 1, remember all of this background. He is now saying, remember in verse 4, when he says, look, just wait. Uh, where's my, um, he, prom he, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard of me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what happens is that he ascends in ch chapter 1. In chapter 2, 120 of them are waiting in a room. It says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and then certain things happened. The Spirit came, and then he said they were filled with the Spirit, and then they spoke in other tongues. They spoke in different languages. People thought they were drunk. I said, no, this is, we can't be drunk. Look at this. It's very early in the day. So Peter then goes to explain what is happening here. And what do you think he did? He explained using Joel chapter 2. He said, don't you understand what the prophet Joel has said? This is the fulfillment of a promise. We are now in the last days. 
because the spirit has been poured out. The people that you are seeing. Now, don't forget what Joel said. Joel said that if the spirit is poured out, the people will do what? Prophesy. But yeah, the people were speaking in tongues. Are they prophesying or speaking in tongues? Time will not allow me to try and break that down. But just take it, at least this is my understanding, that this speaking in tongues is in some way a manifestation of the prophetic. So it's not a contradiction. Why would Peter just say, you knew that what Joel <laughs> said? Joel didn't say that when you pour the Spirit, they will speak in tongues. So if he's saying that this is about prophetic, he's saying, Joel, Moses, this expression of what they are doing has, is tied to the prophetic spirit that has been poured out and has been anticipated. But I want us to not miss what is going on here. Very quick background. If you go to Genesis chapter 11, we talked about yesterday. But Genesis chapter 11, people have come together. Remember, Acts chapter 20, they were all Acts chapter 2, they were all together. This other time, some people came together, even though God told them to spread. When they came together, they had one language. That one language signified that they had one purpose. What was the one purpose? To build ourselves a city and to make a name for ourselves so that we can build a tower that goes high up to God. What is that tower? The center of the city is a ziggurat. It shows their religion. One language, one purpose to rebel against God. And when God came down, what did he do? He judged them by confounding the language so that even though they had one purpose still, a rebellious purpose, now they had different languages so they were divided, even they were divided in their language so that they could not achieve what their purpose wanted them to achieve. In other words, the division of their language was a sign of judgment, but it was not a change of their hearts. Until the spirit was poured out. Because now that the spirit was poured out, the languages still remained. They were speaking different languages. Although different people were now hearing them and saying, what were they saying? I hear them now, not speaking in the same language, but I hear them speaking another type of one language. It is the language of redemption. They were declaring the wonderful works of God. When the spirit was poured out, all of a sudden the thing that was made for judgment, God had now redeemed it and he had used it for his own purpose. Pentecost was the reversal of Babel. Because the spirit was poured out. So that before the throne of God, we will be singing one new song. But that new song will be spoken in every tribe, language, and tongue. Because the Spirit was poured out. So when Peter now eventually has to preach, what did he preach? Come to my church and see great miracles because the Spirit was poured out. Come to the church and see this great man of God because I have the anointing? No. Peter preached Psalm 16. And he said, do you remember in Psalm 16? David said that he will not allow my, uh, his Holy One to see destruction or decay. But he said, come on, what are we talking about? David's tomb is with us. Yes, David was saying that, but he wasn't talking about David himself. He was talking about the Davidic Messiah. And so he says, really, 
what he was pointing to, look at Acts 2, verse 32, 30 to 32. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing that what was to come, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Move to 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Never forget this. The, the very proof on earth that Jesus has been enthroned in heaven is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. When Peter is explaining, he's saying, that guy that was crucified, exalted, we saw him rise. We now know that the Davidic kingdom that was promised that will have no end has started. We now know we're in the last days. Why is it the last days? It is the last days of the dominion of sin and Satan. The last days of the creation of Adam because now there is a new age, the age of the spirit, the age of the Christ, the age of the new creation. The very proof that Jesus is enthroned in heaven is that he has poured out his spirit on the earth. Amen? What follows after that? Well, let me say this, if I may quickly ponder. Yesterday, we talked a lot about Abraham. Remember this song, Abraham's blessings are mine. Abraham's blessings are mine. I am blessed in the morning. I am blessed in the evening. Abraham's blessings are mine. Don't lie. When you sing it, what are you thinking about? Honey, health, something. Right? Abraham's blessings. Because Abraham was a very wealthy man, don't forget. And so, if Abraham's blessings are ours, because God said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you'll be a blessing. So if Abraham's blessings are ours, and God really blessed Abraham had how many servants? There are too many. So if Abraham had so much, and Abraham did not even know Jesus Christ, I know Jesus Christ, so my blessings must even, even though they are of Abraham, they must exceed Abraham's blessings. Abraham's blessing in ours. Receive Abraham's blessings. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What is that blessing given to Abraham? It is going to come through who? Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we will receive what? The promised Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you have received the Brown's blessing. There is no blessing that you can receive in your bank account that can compare to this one. Because you have been brought into the new age. Let us not try to diminish the blessings of God and turn it into something that even unbelievers can have. 
If Abraham's blessings are money, you cannot say this thing that Peter said. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. We have some brothers here. I spoke to some of them. Kaduna in Niger, people are being slaughtered because of the name of Christ. What hope do they have? Most people aren't thinking about money. They're thinking about survival. What is the only hope they have in this life? The only hope they have in this life is that I am his and he is mine. And the proof that I am his and he is mine, the seal of that is that he has poured his spirit on me. So that even though they have cut off their heads, when Jesus returns, they will not just put that head back. He will give them a new head and a new body that can never ever be destroyed. Don't tarnish Abraham's blessings. So what then happens is, you see that by the Holy Spirit, we are tied to this Jesus. In the New Testament, it is now called different metaphors. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, he uses the body metaphor. He says, by one spirit have we all been baptized into what? One body. What is the body? Jesus the head, and then we the body. Or in Ephesians 2 that we just read, if you connect that with 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians 2 says that he is building a temple. He is the chief cornerstone, the main reference stone. But we, according to 1 Peter 2 verse 5, are living stones for the building. He is the foundation and we are the building. A temple. If you go to John chapter 5, 15, he says that he is the vine and we are the branches. We are connected to Christ. How? Because we have the spirit of Christ. This is why you cannot say somebody is first saved and can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, chapter 9. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. I'm spending some time, some time on this because of, again, the confusion that we have. Because this is then connected to what we mean the church. Because when you now look at Acts chapter 2, when Peter asks, when he preaches, they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? He preached the gospel. What shall we do? Remember, what catalyzed their coming together was the point out of the Holy Spirit. He preaches Jesus Christ. What shall we do? Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And when that then happened, 3,000 were added to verse 41. And then when that happened, 42 to 47, they broke bread. They, they listened to the apostles' teaching. They fellowship one another. They prayed. Like normal church things. That was the birthing of the church. So we see the anticipated spirit, and we see the baptism of the spirit. I hope that is clear. Now let us talk about the kingdom, the spirit, and the church. As we have seen that Jesus is enthroned on high as king, and then he is working the operations in the earth as the spirit is working, he's showing that redemption or redemptive activity comes wherever the spirit is present. Redemption and redemptive activity. Now, at 
a most personal fundamental level, personal and fundamental level, it is about repentance and faith in the atoning work of Christ that then gives new life, that he then gives new life to those people who have done that. What do I mean? John chapter 3. Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And it's the whole John chapter 3, 1 to 15. Never forget that. He's talking to Nicodemus. That is the, the, the sequence. And then he tells Nicodemus after Nicodemus is um, asking him, trying to find out who he is. He said, look, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And then except a man is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. Now, many times we think, what is born again? We say, born again Christian. How do I know you're a born again Christian? It's because, you know, you said the sinner's prayer. That's not. It, you, you, you can't be born again by just believing something. It's not mental ascent. Being born again is being born. It, some, someone is giving birth to you, the spirit, right? So being born again is not something you do. It's something that is done to you. Do you understand? Now, you have to believe, and you have to put your faith in Christ. So when Jesus says this, he's still trying to explain to Nicodemus on what grounds this, this whole thing. Because he said, you're Israel's teacher. You don't know this thing. And Jesus is really thinking, he's meditating on Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 that we read. But I don't have time to go into that. But he's saying, what is the ground upon which this new birth is going to happen. Because this thing seems too highfalutin. It's, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, Jesus then takes him to Numbers chapter 21. He sees redemption there. What happened? The snakes in the wilderness, remember that? The snakes in the wilderness because the people were complaining. And how did the people get saved? A pole was set up. A bronze serpent was there. And if you looked at the bronze serpent that was lifted up, you would be what? Saved. You would be delivered. So Jesus then uses that to explain the ground of the new birth. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whosoever believes in him, right, whoever believes in him will be saved. That's where Jesus ends it. He's saying the same way, if somebody looks, not if somebody performs or somebody works, if somebody looks to this crucified Son of Man, they will be what? Saved. Then John now gives his own commentary on it. The most famous New Testament verse. For in this manner, for so, for in this manner, God loved worldly people. That whoso, God so loved the world that whosoever would also look, whosoever believes on will not what? But have eternal life. Those who then believe on him are those he gives new life to. Amen? He calls them by his spirit. It's the spirit that then makes them see the goodness of God. They believe, repent and believe. And according to Acts chapter 2 verse 13, when they repent and believe, he then gives them his spirit. So at a fundamental level, fundamental personal level, this is the redemptive work of the spirit. That the father appointed the plan, the son atones in that plan, and the spirit applies the effect of that plan. Amen? Yes. The Trinitarian work again in redemption. At a fundamental personal level. 
But what about at a collective level? Because Jesus Christ did not just die for you. He died for you. You. But Jesus Christ died for you. He died for his bride. I laid down my life for my sheep, plural. So what about at a collective level? Because remember in 1 Peter 2, 9, verse 10, it says that, yesterday I said, the holy, the holy uh, couple failed, Adam and Eve. The holy family, Abraham's family failed. The holy nation failed. But now the church is this holy transnational nation. You are now a royal priesthood. I will make you a kingdom of priests. You are all priests. So these people, this new community that baptized, if a community that baptized in the spirit, how does the spirit work? What, what, what is the relationship between the kingdom of God, the spirit, and them? Now, there are two things. I, I want to then use this um, to close. Two things. The kingdom of God works through them and within them. The kingdom of God works through them, these collective people, and within them. Very first one, I'll, this one's very quick. Remember, that like I said, if you look at the book of Acts, it's an advancement of the kingdom of God. You will see certain things, certain patterns in the kingdom of God, in the, in the book of Acts. Don't miss it. Why am I saying that? For instance, anywhere you see, the, you know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, a sower went out to sow, right, to, and he spread some seed. What is the seed that he spread? The word of the kingdom. The word about the kingdom. So the kingdom advances when the word about the kingdom, that is the gospel of the kingdom, is then preached. So when the word of the kingdom goes, souls germinates, the kingdom grows. Do you understand? So the kingdom is advancing when the word is spreading. The kingdom is advancing when the word is spreading. Look at how Acts chapter, Acts takes us through the spread of the word. Acts chapter 6, verse um, Acts chapter 6, after the appointment of deacons, right, what happens in the church? It says, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. Then you go to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. After the death of, of Stephen, the scattering of the people, what does it say? So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. But then you go to Acts chapter 12, after James has been beheaded, Peter is in prison, then King Herod, who thought he was king, by killing James, at the end of Acts chapter 12, Herod is dead, Peter is freed, and guess what happens? The word of God continued to spread. And when you get to Acts chapter 19, Paul is now going to the ends of the earth. Now what is he doing? In this way, the word of the Lord spread. Can you see? The kingdom of God is advancing by the word of the kingdom advancing. But he doesn't just do it through one person. Paul was sent out by the church. It is the church, as Oni was trying to tell us, that is God's mission strategy. So God's kingdom will advance through them. That's the first thing. But then God's kingdom is also going to be in operation within them. And this is where I want to talk. Your gospel, your healthy church, must be part of something in advancing, but how would you see that kingdom within them? And this is, uh, this last part is the last part. Now, I didn't say, I said part two. I didn't say, all right, let's, let's move on. The kingdom's operation within this body is seen when the spirit causes a lifestyle of loving character and maturity working through the gifts. 
In Romans chapter 14, you see, the thing about this is, if in the church, if you find these three things, if you find that when we are talking about things we disagree on, and, you know, and we get so uptight about it, right, whilst we are not even thinking about how our lives are going, you will find unrighteousness in the church. You will find division in the church. You will find misery. Because when you have unrighteousness and then you have division, eventually it, you will find what? Misery. And when you identify that, you say, there is another spirit that is working here. I can't stay in this church where there is unrighteousness, division, and, and misery. And if there's that spirit working there, there's another kingdom. I recognize what that kingdom is. Because this is not what the church should be like. It should not be about unrighteousness, division, and misery. Why? Because we know that the kingdom of God is righteousness, Peace and joy in what? The Holy Spirit. Righteousness for unrighteousness. Peace for division. Joy for misery. How does that work out? It is because of the Holy Spirit's work within the church. If you want to see the Holy Spirit's work within the church in the most concise and maybe comprehensive manner, read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. It has much debate, but I think sometimes we miss the bigger picture before we get into the detail. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, what do you have? 12, you're talking about gifts of the Spirit. 14, you're talking about gifts of the Spirit. Then 13, we preach at marriages. <laughs> it's all about love. Is it like Paul, Paul was first thinking about the gifts? Ah, let me quickly give them something about marriage. Then let me come back to the gifts. Don't forget in 14, he said God is not the author of confusion. If he was in confusion in his mind when he was writing that. No, because they come together. Don't you see it? He puts love. You know if you take sandwich, right? You put butter, you put ham, and you put bread. Right? If you take bread without sandwich, we call that condition. Bread without ham or butter is condition, right? When you put ham inside, it's nice. Right? But if you just take ham alone, it's not great. So take ham and sandwich. So you put bread, talking about the spirit here, and then you put ham, love. Because if you, don't, if you use the gifts without love, you will have a problem. You see, far too often when we think about the spirit and this thing, I think we talk about, we talk about them in disjointed form. Should I have the gifts or should I have the fruit? This truncated way of thinking, as though the Holy Spirit himself is divided, is a problem. Because if you use the gifts without the fruit of love, you will have abuse of people in church and not service to the people in the church. You will have the glorification of men and not the glorification of Jesus. That was the problem in Corinth. No love. So the people with the showy gifts started to glorify themselves. And they weren't serving the church. Whereas the gifts were given for the edification of the church. When you use the gift in love, that's what the gift is meant to be for. But then some people, because they are so scared and we've seen the abuses, we then say, if we, it's all about the fruit, because it's by their fruit you shall know them. Yes, but the person who gives the fruit gives this, this, the, the gifts as well. Because if you have love without the gifts, you have wishes, but you don't have the ability to carry them out. You have compassion, but you have no service. As I said, you will, we don't have any other thing. You will not be able to tell somebody in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. 
is the one self-same spirit. So what it shows us here is two things. The character that is formed by the spirit and the gifts that is given by the spirit. The character, take the character. When you are born of the spirit, you are a new man. Paul would use new man. John would say, born again. But as John shows us, that new man is a citizen of the kingdom. So this person has to, that has the spirit living in them, you have to live a life of high personal moral order. When he says that Stephen was full of the spirit, he wasn't talking about spirit, uh, Stephen's gifts. He was talking about the spirit has so saturated this man that he, he was morally beautiful. When he talks to you about the spirit, not feeling of the spirit, but full of the spirit, he's now talking about your character. He's saying now at that point. He's talking about the development of the person. That's why Jesus in chapter, in Matthew, as Ronnie showed us, in Matthew chapter 4, he's, he's, he's preaching, he's healing, and he's like, people, are they misunderstanding me? Are they misunderstanding what I came to do? So he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches about the character of the people of the kingdom. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, when he's telling the people, oh, you now want to go back to the law. He says, tell me, the spirit, the work of the spirit and the miracles that were done among you, was it done by the hearing of the law or was it not done by the spirit? That's Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 5, he tells us the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, all of those things. The apostles and the, the, the writers don't bifurcate this thing the way we do. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says, keep being filled with the Spirit. Some people want to use that to be drunk in the Spirit. Holy Ghost laughter, I don't know what that, is, that means. But what happens after? He says, let me tell you somebody that is filled with the Spirit. He will not be beating his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit. And he says, someone that is filled with the Spirit will lay down his life for his wife. Someone that is filled with the Spirit, when he's parenting his children, he will not exasperate them. Someone that is filled with the Spirit, when he's working, he's working diligently as unto the Lord. That is somebody that is full of the Spirit. Personal moral character that shows you the kingdom of God has come. But it's not just personal moral character. It is also social moral character. Sometimes the people that you find are so so stringent about doing, uh, 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 being, not sleeping around, not being corrupt. They are the worst people when it comes about talking about the poor people, talking about doing things in their society. James tells us, listen, this is what true religion is about, pure and faultless. What is it to do? It is for us to take care of the widows. Let me read it better. Look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from polluted by the world. Or chapter 2, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one, if one of them says to you, uh, sorry, if you, one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Faith without works is dead. So it's not just your personal, your personal moral character, but how you deal with the social fabric as well. Do good unto all men. Not just in your church, but especially those in your church. So that is 
one part of it. But the other part of it is the gift of the Spirit. One time Jesus was with some people. They were deliberating how he was casting out demons. And they were saying, look, this thing is by, is by Beelzebub. So really, if I do it by Beelzebub, okay. How is it that Satan's kingdom is already divided? Because you know a kingdom divided by itself cannot stand. Right? So I know Satan wants to op- oppress people demonically. So if I'm now casting out demons by Beelzebub, who is linked to Satan, I'm, doing, I'm undoing Satan's work. And then by what spirit does your, 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 your own uh, uh, children cast them out? They will be your judges. However, Matthew 12, verse 28, if I cast out these demons by the spirit of God, if it is done by the spirit of God, then know this. The kingdom of God has come among you. The same kingdom that helps us with our character. Jesus is saying, now I am showing you the outbreak of that kingdom. Only showed us in Matthew 4 and Matthew 9. Jesus went out. He taught in the synagogues about the kingdom. He then proclaimed about the kingdom. And then he demonstrated the powers of the kingdom. Put it up. Matthew 9, Matthew, uh, Jesus went to Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. Teaching, preaching, demonstrating. In the, the writer of Hebrews, even though he was talking about something else, he was talking about apostates, he was saying part of the things that we see in the church, right? This is not describing a true believer, but he's saying this person that has actually partaken of these things in the church, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, he says, one of the things, not only do they taste of the power of the word, but they partake in the Holy Spirit and the power of the age to come. Because in the age to come, there will be no sick person. And what he's saying is that even though the kingdom has not been fully consummated. This is why you cannot go around saying that Jesus guarantees healing for everyone. Why? Because the kingdom has not been fully consummated. But at the same time, the kingdom has been inaugurated. And so sometimes the power of the age to come can come into this age. That is how we know the kingdom of God is among us. Have people abused it? They always abuse truth. That is how you know truth is truth. But the gifts are given to us so that we can serve in love. Guys, how would we have healthy churches? We'll have healthy churches when we make much of Christ. He is the king, He is the shepherd. He is the overseer. He is the head of the church. But the proof that Christ is the head of the church, Christ who is in heaven is the head of the church, is that he has poured out his spirit. And so we see the kingdom of God working in our churches because we see the Holy Spirit working in our churches. When we have spirit-filled churches, you know what happens? Through those churches, the kingdom of God advances through evangelism and mission. Within those churches, we have people living 
loving, sacrificial, loving lives of personal and social purity. And in those churches, we will not despise the spirit, but uh, the gifts of the spirit, but we'll see the spirit of the, the gifts of the spirit growing and used in a healthy way. If you have that kind of church, listen to me, it will be unstoppable. It will ensure that the gate of hell will not prevail. The kingdom of God rests on the mediated rule of his enthroned Christ and the operations of the Holy Spirit. What we need is God with us and God in us. This will continue until the day the trumpet shall sound and the voice and declaration will come and say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and it shall reign forever and ever and ever, to which we all say, Amen. Let us pray.